Well, thank you so much, Blake, and so grateful for our worship team <clears throat> just leading us in great songs like that. And, and uh, young people, I just got to tell you, man, having you guys in force here, second service is adding a little extra something, something here. I like that, man. Uh, you guys need to come to second service more often, you know, and uh, love it. So thanks, you guys, for just passionately worshiping the Lord this morning and, and uh, spurring us on, us old folks, right? Uh, to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So I also wanted to just take a moment and acknowledge a very special guest this morning. Marianne Williamson is back in town. And uh, if you, there she is. She hasn't changed a bit. Look at that. And uh, anyway, Marianne was a longtime member of Lakeside Bible Church and uh, moved to the East Coast about a year ago, I guess. Okay, so... Exactly. So I told you she hadn't changed a bit, had she? Right? Always got to be correcting the pastor, okay? That's a... Gotcha. Yeah, th- thanks for rubbing that in, Marianne. Anyway, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. And Ann, thanks for bringing mom by. And we always love having you guys uh, with us. So... Anyway, if you haven't had a chance to hug on Marianne this morning, make sure you grab her before she leaves uh, after church today. Well, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15, and we're going to continue going through this epic chapter. So much great truth here, jam-packed into just one chapter, John chapter 15. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17, where Jesus focused on the disciples' relationship to each other. Verses 1 through 11, he was talking about the disciples' relationship to him as the branches um, abiding in the vine, and now he's going to talk about how they're to relate to one another. And so let me read this text, John chapter 14, excuse me, chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word once again. Thank you that we can study it together uh, as your people. And Lord, we need your spirit now to illuminate us, to give us understanding. Lord, to to know how this uh, passage applies to our lives uh, in our context. And so what we first need to understand it in, in its original context. And so help us with that. And Lord, we'll uh, trust you this morning that you're going to Uh, continue to say the things that we need to hear this morning to us through the Gospel of John so we can be who you want us to be. So accomplish your work for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friendship is what it means to be human. Um, From the time we're old enough to to make friends until we have to say goodbye to our friends when, when we die or when they die, it seems that our lives revolves around our friends, getting together with friends, hanging out with friends, having, falling out with friends, making up with friends, um, 
being reconciled with friends, making memories with friends. Few things impact or influence our lives more than our friends, or in some cases, a lack of friends. Many of the greatest joys and pains that we experience in our lives are somehow connected or linked to our friends. To be able to call someone a true friend or to be considered by someone to be a true friend are both gifts from God, are they not? God in His Word talks a lot about friendship. Exodus 33, 11, it says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Job 16, verse 20, he says, My friends are my scoffers. Uh, And as you know, his friends, uh, when Job's life went through the ringer, uh, his, his friends showed up. And for the first seven days... Uh, they were awesome friends because they just sat there and said nothing and just cried with Job. And then they decided to open up their mouth and they started to interpret the providence of God and try to tell him all the reasons why he was going through what he was going through. And he said, at the end of the day, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads, okay? Because you're scoffing, you're, you're saying all these things. And so that, that's um, part of what the Bible says about friendship. Proverbs seventeen seventeen: a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I think you would agree with me. Probably the best example of friendship in the Bible has to be the relationship between David and Jonathan. We see that unfold in First and Second Samuel. First Samuel 18, verse 1 says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. 2 Samuel 1.26, after um, Jonathan was killed alongside his father in a battle, David grieved the loss of his friend. He said, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Well, having said all that, in my opinion, I think the most profound statement in the Bible regarding friendship is when God called Abraham his BFF. Now, I don't mean to be trite and demeaning of God or Abraham, but listen to what the text of Scripture says. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? Isaiah 41, 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend... And then this theme is picked up in the New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Can you imagine having God call you his friend? Well, up until our text here in John 15, Abraham was the only person in scripture who was ever called the friend of God. But when Jesus called his 11 disciples friends in the upper room, he widened the circle of God's friends to include them in this sacred rank. And after being rejected by the majority of of, of his own people, the Jews, Jesus, as you know, retreated to the upper room with those he had chosen to be his disciples. And after spending three years together with these men, 
they had not just become his closest followers, but his closest friends. These were the men who were the nearest and dearest to his heart. And believe it or not, that also included Judas. And if you remember back in John 13, when he exposed Judas for the betrayer uh, that he would be, uh, in verse 25 of chapter 13, it says, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, John, the one who wrote this gospel, said, Lord, who is it? Who are you talking about? You're saying somebody's going to betray you. One of us is going to betray you. Who is it? And so John leans back. They're all laying down, right, leaning on one elbow. And so John leans back on Jesus and says, hey, who are you talking about? And he says this, Jesus then answered that this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And we said when we were studying John 13 that that was a, a customary for a host to dip a piece of bread into a bowl and pass it to the honored guest as a special gesture of friendship. And the fact that Judas was, was near enough for Jesus to hand him a, a piece of bread suggests that he was seated in the only other place where he might have been able to be reached by Jesus. If with John was on this side of Jesus, where would Judas have been? probably behind Jesus, right, which was a place of honor reserved for the host's closest and most trusted friend, right? You don't put anybody behind you that might stab you in the back, right? And so even after Judas kissed him in the garden and betrayed him, Jesus still tenderly addressed him as friend, Matthew 26, verse 50. And I think that's why the psalmist prophesied about Judas's betrayal when he said this in Psalm 55 verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, but it is you, my companion and my familiar friend. That was a reference to Judas. Well, now that Judas had departed, Jesus was left alone with his real friends, right? His true friends. And not only did he want them to know how much he loved them as his friends, he also wanted to make sure that they loved each other as friends. Because at this point, other than the fact that Jesus was, was leaving them, the disciples had no idea what was about to take place. And, and Jesus knew things were about to get wild and crazy, and the pressure on them would intensify, as could the tension between them. And he wouldn't be there to play referee, as he so often had to do with these guys. And he knew that the only way that they would be able to withstand the approaching onslaught of the world, which he's going to describe uh, later on here in verses 18 through 27, um, the only way for them to, to withstand that was to stick together and to learn to love each other. And the success of Christ's work depended on them staying tight and working together with each other. And so love is the one thing that would keep them tight and make it possible for them to fulfill the great commission that he was about to entrust to them before he returned to heaven. And so two more times in this passage, uh, Jesus repeated the command that he'd already given to them earlier that evening. If you remember back in John 13, verse 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then here he goes in John chapter 15, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And he says it again, just a few verses later, verse 17, This I command you, that you love one another. So really, the, the love one another is, a, is really the bookends for our text this morning. And the key 
to, to the unbelieving world, coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior is his followers, not loving them, but loving each other. Listen, our love for one another in this church is the key to effectively reaching this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in times of testing, which inevitably arise in the course of fulfilling the Great Commission, right? If you've ever been a part of a church who's on a mission, right, to reach the world, oftentimes things can get pretty wild and crazy. And, and what is it, right, that, that, that holds that church together, that keeps them on mission, right, and, and, and helps them work through all the tension and the pressure that oftentimes arises in the church? What is it? One word. Love. It's love. And so this passage is, is all about love and, and friendship. And, and, and the way I would like us to see this this morning is that, that in this passage, Jesus explained four marks of a true friend of Jesus. Uh, the question is, well, what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus, and how do I know if I qualify as a friend of Jesus? Listen, all of us as Christians have the, the undeserved privilege of being considered friends of Jesus. But with that comes some awesome responsibility, right? With that privilege comes some awesome responsibilities. And so let's look at these four marks of a true friend of Jesus. Number one, friends of Jesus love his friends. Number two, friends of Jesus obey his commands. Number three, friends of Jesus know his plans. And then friends of Jesus, number four, answer his call. Those are the four marks of a true friend of Jesus. So let's look at these marks one at a time. Number one, friends of Jesus love his friends. Again, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. Jesus is commanding his disciples to love each other just like he had loved them. Now, the first time he had said this was right after he finished washing dirt off the disciples' feet. And so the initial standard that he had set for loving one another as he had loved them was humbly, selflessly serving one another. And we talked about that in the foot washing passage in John 13, that, hey, we have a responsibility to humbly, right, and selflessly serve one another, and that's how we show our love for one another. Now, he's saying the same thing again, two times now, right before dying on the cross to wash away his disciples' sins. Big difference between washing dirt off disciples' feet and washing sin off a disciples' souls, right? And so now, the ultimate standard that he set was humbly and selflessly sacrificing himself for his disciples. So it's not enough just to humbly, selflessly serve one another. Now now we need to humbly, selflessly sacrifice ourselves for one another. Notice verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. In less than 24 hours, Jesus would lay down his life as a sacrifice for his sheep on the cross. And he had already foretold this back in John chapter 10, when he was um, describing himself as the good shepherd. Listen to what it says in John 10, 11. Uh, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. 
And so when he says, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Listen, his sac- Christ's sacrificial death is the supreme expression or evidence of his love for us. There, there's nothing greater that Jesus could have done to show us how much he loves us. He, he can never love us more than he did when he died on the cross for us. And it was through Christ's death on the cross that we became his friends. Because when things started off, we weren't his friends. We were his what? We just sang about it. We were his enemies. Romans chapter 5, Paul makes this very clear in describing the love of God in Christ. He says this in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, on the other hand, demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so Jesus died so that his enemies, that's you, that's me, could be his friends. I'm sure some of you have uh, watched that classic film called The Bridge Over the River Kauai, uh, kind of an Academy Award-winning movie and uh, years ago, and, and um, about these POWs, right, who, British POWs who had to build this bridge for the Japanese during World War II. Well, there's a, a book in like manner called The Miracle on the River Kauai, written from a Christian perspective. A man tells the story of a group of POWs working on the Burma Railway during World War II, and he describes uh, something that happened one day, and let me just read for, for, for you what he said in his own words. He said, At the end of each day, the tools were collected from the work party. On one occasion, a Japanese guard shouted that a shovel was missing and demanded to know which man had taken it. He began to rant and to rave, working himself up into a paranoid fury, and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward. No one moved. All die! All die! He shrieked cocking and aiming his rifle at the prisoners. At that moment, one man stepped forward and the guard clubbed him to death with his rifle while he stood silently to attention. When they returned to the camp, the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. What a powerful picture of what it means to lay down your life for your friends. And like Jesus, that man was, was innocent of, of any crime. He, he hadn't stolen any shovel. He didn't deserve to die, but he was willing to die to save the lives of his friends. That's exactly what Jesus did. He was innocent, right? He didn't deserve to die, but he became sin, right, for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And now Jesus expects those of us for whom he died, for whom he laid his life down, to show the same kind of selfless, sacrificial love toward one another, even if it means laying down our lives for others. Warren Wiersbe has provided a good reminder in his commentary. He said this, Christian love is not basically a feeling, it's an act of the will. The proof of our love is not our feelings, but in our actions. While the emotions are certainly involved, real Christians' love is an act of the will. It means treating others the way God treats us. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children 
And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, I've said this before, but you got to know that John, the author of this gospel, was taking really good notes that night in the upper room. How do we know that? Well, because when he came to writing his first epistle to the believers in Asia, in 1 John chapter well, just in the book of 1 John, uh, he repeated this particular principle about loving one another multiple times. Uh, just listen, for example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, the one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, don't say that you're walking in the light, that you're a Christian if you don't, right, if you hate your brother. You're a liar. Um, He goes on in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. How do you know if someone's a Christian or not? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. He goes on in verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sound familiar? John was taking notes in the upper room. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen, and his commandment, and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother Also, the point is that friends of Jesus love his friends. Do you get it? Okay? If you're a friend of Jesus and I'm a friend of Jesus, then guess what? That makes us friends, right? And and we have that expression, right? Listen, any friend of yours is a friend of mine, right? And so listen, if if, 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 if you're a friend of Jesus, right? Then, then you're a friend of mine. And, 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 uh, and that's the way, or we're all friends of Jesus, so we should be all friends with one another. And you're like, well, I don't know about these people. I mean, sure, I mean, some of these people are my friends, but a lot of them are just kind of acquaintances. Well, let's move on and see what Jesus had to say about that. Number two, friends of Jesus obey his commands. You want to know if you're a friend of Jesus, friends of Jesus obey his commands. Verse 14, here's the O word again, right? You are my friends if you do what I command you. When anyone obeys the commands of Christ, that proves that they're a friend, a true friend of Christ. And I appreciate D.A. Carson. Again, he, he, he clarifies this very well. He says, listen, obedience is not what makes us friends. It's what characterizes us as friends. Okay, obedience is not what makes us friends of Jesus. It's what characterizes the friends of Jesus. Um, Jesus has already insisted a number of times that obedience was the determining factor whether or not we truly knew him or, or truly love him, right? Chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. Verse, verse 21, um, he says, he who has my commandments will keep, and, and keeps them is the one who loves me. Uh, verse 23, 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Chapter 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, John's taking notes. When he comes to write his letter, first, first letter, first John, chapter 2, verse 3, by this we know we've come to know him if we keep his, what? Commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, man, can you sound like a broken record? Because it seems like you just keep saying that every Sunday, you know, don't you have any other sermon, okay, that you can preach to us? All right? Well, again, hopefully you see I'm just faithfully going through the text verse by verse here. And so if you're going to blame anybody for being a broken record, it's John, okay? And, and, and furthermore, he's simply quoting Jesus. And in my Bible, all this is in red letters, okay? So if, you're, if, if anyone's being redundant here, it's Jesus. But there's good reason for his redundance on this issue of obedience because I think too many people think that a Christian is just someone who believes in Jesus. But they fail to realize that a Christian is also someone who, who obeys Jesus. John 3.36, we already went over this. John 3.36, he, he who believes in the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so here we see, just in the Gospel of John, that the word believe and obey are synonymous terms. That, that, that belief, according to Jesus, was more than just accepting some facts about who he was. It was, it was, it was those facts uh, engaging the heart in a life of obedience. That if Jesus is actually, if I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, then I'm, it's going to change the way I live my life. It's, it's a package deal here. And, and, and we need to understand that there's, a, that there's a close connection between faith and obedience in the New Testament. I mean, the, the, that obedience logically and naturally flows out of true, genuine, saving faith. Now, let me just give you some examples. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Luke is describing the salvation or the conversion of some of the Jewish priests. And he says this, the word, this is Acts 6, 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Interesting, the connection there between obedience and faith. How about Romans chapter 1, verse 5? Here's Paul introducing himself um, to uh, the Romans And he says this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So the way Paul described um, the gospel and and the Gentiles' response to the gospel, what does it mean to be saved, is, is the obedience of faith. He went on in Romans chapter 15, verse 18. He says, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Chapter 16, there are Romans 20, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to 
to the commandment of the eternal God. He has made known to all nations, here it is, the end of verse 26, leading to obedience of faith. Interesting, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, um, Paul says that when Jesus returns to judge the world, it says he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Interesting. Um, how about this? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And having been made perfect, this is talking about Jesus, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. In other words, if you want to be saved, there's obedience involved, right? This, this, this obedience coupled with faith. Um, how about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2? Peter's talking about writing to those who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. And then the last verse, 1 Peter 4, 17, it, is this, it says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So again, I just wanted to point out to you that this, this obvious connection between faith and obedience in the New Testament. Uh, just to, to root out that easy believism that's in our culture, uh, that, that kind of cultural Christianity that all you got to do is believe. Well, if, if you truly believe, right, you will live a life of obedience. Now, again, after saying all that, we always have to make sure we follow it up with a very clear statement, and I appreciate John MacArthur's statement in his commentary. He said this, Obedience is not the means of salvation, but it is the inevitable result. It is the proof that a person has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not saved, right? You can't be saved by obeying, because you'll never obey enough, right, to make up for all your sin, okay? But it's simply evidence that you are saved, so we can be God's friend if we obey his commands, but if we are friends with the world, we'll inevitably disobey him. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? In other words, you've got to make a choice. You've got to take your pick. You can either be a friend of God or you can be a friend of the world. You can't be both. And so true friends of Jesus Obey his commands. Thirdly, friends of Jesus know his plans. Friends of Jesus know his plans. Notice verse, back in John 15, verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. That word slaves there is the word doulos, um, and it is a great word, by the way, to to describe yourself if you're a Christian. I mean, some of the greatest men in the Old Testament were referred to as slaves. We're talking about Moses and Caleb and Joshua and Job and David and Isaiah referred to themselves as, as, as slaves. Uh, here in the New Testament, uh, the apostles like Paul and James and Peter and Jude and John, they all refer to themselves as, as slaves. So this is by no means a derogatory title that we should avoid and say, no, 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 you should never view yourself as a slave. You're a friend. You're a son, right? No, there's lots of places uh, where believers are referred to as slaves. And, and, and it's really just a practical way of acknowledging 
our submission to and dependence on, uh, on our heavenly master, that, that, that God, we are servants of God. That's what we're saying. We're slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. I love what Jesus said elsewhere in John, or excuse me, Luke 17, 10. He said this, so you too, when you do all the things which you're commanded to do, say, quote, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And he was talking about, hey, listen, the guy who goes out, the slave goes out, he works all day, and he comes back home, and he goes, has one more job to do, he has to make the meal for his master, and he doesn't expect his master to say, hey, boy, thanks so much. No, he's just doing what was expected of him. He said, in the same way, you're an unworthy slave, and, and, and when you've done uh, what you were, were to do, what you've been commanded to do, right, don't look for a pat on the back, don't look for an attaboy, right, just say, hey, I've only done what I should have done. Now, again, that's not the emphasis of this text, though. Notice what he says here. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. This is a much more exalted title. Uh, This is an elevated position, right? Um, This is far better than a slave. This is a friend. What would you rather be, a slave or a friend? Right? I mean, and not not just even an acquaintance here or, or, or even an associate. No, Jesus calls them friend. And in Jesus' mind here, these guys were more than just acquaintances. They were more than just his associates. They weren't just tools to help him accomplish his mission, right? They were his friends. And really what distinguishes a slave from a friend or a friend from a slave is that slaves are expected to just do whatever they're assigned to do, right, without any questions, without any explanation. Masters don't, don't sit down with their slaves and share with them their plans and their purposes. However, if, 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 you, if you're a friend, right, what do you do? You, you confide in your friend, you, you share your heart with your friend, and you let them in on your plans and your purposes and your dreams and your goals, right? Well, again, as I mentioned, up to this point in Scripture, Abraham was the only person who had been called God's friend. And I think it's interesting that I think God's friendship with Abraham really illustrated what Jesus was talking about in this verse. Uh, if you remember back in Genesis 18, when, when the, the angel of the Lord came to announce the, the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah thought that was funny, and she laughed after they got that sorted out, right? Um, Abraham followed the angel of the Lord uh, out to the hillside where he could look down, where they could look down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and they had a conversation, and this is interesting. Um, this is Genesis 18, 16. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. And as you... If you remember, the conversation went like this. And so uh, Abraham immediately said, well, wait, time out, God. <laughs> now, if, if there was 50 righteous people there, w- would you spare the city? And he's like, absolutely. How about 40? How about 30? How about 25? How about 10? He gets him down to, talks God down to 10, right? It's like friends having a dialogue. And, and he says, if there's 10 righteous people, w- would, you, would you spare that city? And he said, of course. And uh, of course... Abraham was thinking that's probably about 
the size of his families, right? His daughters and their sons-in-laws and their children and stuff like that. Well, the, the point is simply this, right? That, that, that God, the angel of the Lord, was letting Abraham in on his plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because he was a friend. That's what friends do. And that's precisely what Jesus was doing here in John 15 with his disciples in the upper room. He was letting them in on his plans, right? He was in the process of revealing the Father's purposes and plans for the future. He'd already told them about his departure, his, his death, his, his resurrection, his ascension. He already told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit who would help them fulfill the mission uh, during the interval time after he left and before he returned uh, to get them from heaven. Uh, he had revealed to them all that the Father had given to him, and they received it. That's what he prayed in, in John 17, verse 6. I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you have given me is from you, from the words, for the words which you've given me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Listen, that describes, hopefully, most of us in this room, that by the grace of God, we have received and understood the message of Jesus Christ, amen? And so we have the same extraordinary privilege of receiving and understanding God's revelation through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We are more than just slaves of Christ. We are his friends. Jesus Christ, the almighty God of the universe in human form likens your relationship with him as a friendship. How cool is that? I know some of you maybe have known famous people. Um, You've met them. And uh, can you imagine if somewhere along the way it got back to you that this famous person, right, that you had met had mentioned to someone else, oh yeah, I, I remember meeting, I consider them a good friend. They're, they're my friend. I mean, you'd be like, whoa, that's so cool. Right? Kind of, you make you feel good about yourself, right? Like, wow, that's so cool that this guy thought, views me as a friend. Well, guess what? Right? Of all the friends that you, you may have made in life or could have in life, there is no truer, better friend than Jesus. And I think understanding this provides us with just a fresh new perspective on how we're able to abide and commune with Christ. I mean, you think tomorrow morning when you wake up to have your quiet time that you're not necessarily going before the God of the universe. You're going to commune with your friend. Your friend. Jesus says, you're my friends. And so... Friends of Jesus know his plans. And by the way, these are his plans, right? He's given us his plans here, so we spend time in his word and we know his plans. And so this is, the, this is the, really the key to our friendship with Jesus is right here. Well, there's one more mark of a friend of Jesus, and that is they answer his call. They answer his call. Notice verse 16 He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now, lest the disciples start to think highly of themselves, wow, I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm one of Jesus' friends, right? And they begin to take pride in or credit for this privileged position that they enjoyed as, as a friend of Jesus. Jesus reminded them they had absolutely nothing to do with it. 
You didn't choose me. I chose you. And, and he, he, he's speaking in very plain terms, but he's already hinted at this back in John chapter 6 as we begin to see the first uh, hint of, of, of the sovereignty of God in salvation here in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he said in verse 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And so now he says here very clearly, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. He says just a few verses later in verse 19, he said, I chose you out of the world, and because of this the world hates you. His point was this, that that their relationship, their friendship was a matter of grace. It wasn't a, it wasn't, it wasn't the result of their own merit, but it was based on his sovereign choice of him. And I think this is interesting because in, in those days, it was customary for a would-be disciple to, to choose a rabbi that he wanted to follow. Is okay, there's rabbi so-and-so, or I'm, there's rabbi so-and-so. I'm going to go. I've heard good things. I'm going to go, and I'm going to be his disciple. I pick him to be my mentor, my master, my rabbi. But in this case, Jesus said, listen, <laughs> you didn't choose me. To be your mentor, your rabbi, I chose you to be my disciple. Now, primarily, I think that Jesus was referring to how he selected the 12 men uh, that he did to be his disciples, set them apart for special service to him. Listen to the similar language in the other Gospels, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named his apostles. And then in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he would send the, could send them out to preach. And so I think he's talking about, when he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, he's talking about choosing them as his disciples. Those 12 specially set apart men that he appointed for his service. However, you can't help but also see secondarily in this phrase, you did not choose me, but I chose you, a reference to the doctrine of election. I mean, it's, it's all over the place in Scripture, uh, we don't have time to look at the verses. Maybe we'll do that at some point in the future. But, um, man, all these verses from Matthew, Romans, Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, all these mentions of the word elect and chosen and predestined and foreknowledge. And, and, and what do you do with that? You've got you to gotta do something with that. And listen, if, if you think that you chose to follow Christ then you really don't understand God's sovereignty or the depth of your depravity. We weren't friends to begin with, and we would have never been friends if left to ourselves. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. You can talk about free will all you want, right? But the Bible says you're not able there's an inability. That really total depravity is really total inability is what it is. 
Colossians 1.21 and 22, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, even though you were alienated and an enemy and hostile, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Maybe more on that later, but that's just enough to get me in trouble. Um, Or at least to get you thinking and studying the Bible yourself, right? Study it out yourself. But notice he says here, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. God didn't reconcile us to himself and set us apart to idly sit around and do nothing, right? He wanted us to go into the world and bear lasting fruit. You say, what is that fruit he's talking about? Well, in this context, um, I think, first of all, we should understand this as, as reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where else did Jesus say go? Mark 16, go into the world and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. So fruit refers to those people who come to know Christ through our witness. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 13. He says, I do not want... I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. He's saying, hey, I always wanted to go to Rome and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. In other words, I've seen a lot of fruit in all the other places that I've I've traveled to, the other cities where Gentiles have come to know Christ. As I've preached the gospel, I want some of that same fruit to happen in in Rome. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so I think in this context, we're we're talking about the the fruit that he wants us to go produce, right, that remains are, are people getting saved, Getting truly saved, right? And that's, that's fruit. That's, 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 um, that, that, that's what he wants us to do. That's why he saved us, is to reach other people. Well, we know also that fruit refers to godly attitudes, right? The fruit of the spirits, righteous behavior, praise and thanksgiving. And that ultimately, fruitfulness is the result of prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. Again, back in John 15, this last verse, verse 16 so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Listen, as friends of Jesus, we have access to his presence anytime we want and will receive whatever we ask for in his name according to his will. We've been learning that, chapter 14, chapter 16. We're going to see it again, that whatever we ask for in his name according to his will, we will receive. Remember that old chorus, what a friend we have in Jesus? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise and forsake thee? In other words, that's not going to happen with Jesus. He'll never despise you. He'll never forsake you. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Listen, beloved, we have been graciously chosen, been chosen and set apart by God to share with the world the good news of salvation through the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ. But the only way that we will ever accomplish that great mission is if we stay strong and united together in our love for each other. 
I was trying to think of a, a statement, and it really just came to me as I was studying this passage based on some, some key texts in the, in the Bible about love. This is, this is a statement. Love believes the best and covers the rest. What do you think? Does that sound biblical? Love believes the best and covers the rest. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love believes all things. In other words, instead of thinking the worst about others, you think the best about others. So love believes the best. And then 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love, what? Covers a multitude of sins. And so love believes the best and covers the rest. Is that how you love your spouse? Do you believe the best and let love cover the rest? Is that how you love your children? Is that how you love your brothers and sisters? Is that how you love each other in this church? Is this the way you treat one another? That that you believe the best and let love cover the rest? Can you honestly say that you love the people sitting around you? Do you consider the people in this room to be your friends? You know, it's interesting, um, in the same way we didn't choose to be Jesus' friend, he chose us to be his friend, right? We don't get to choose our friends either in the body of Christ. You just show up at the church and you're like, well, these are my friends. (laughs) And I didn't have anything to do with it. Jesus already chose my friends for me. When he chose you for salvation, right? When he chose everyone in this room for salvation, he chose our friends, and you say, well, I don't really like my friends. Well, get, get used to it, right? These are, this is all you got right here. This is it. This is who God chose for you to have friends, to, to be your friends. And so you say, well, how, man, this is, so how do you deal with that? You love, love believes the best and covers the rest. That's how you do it. More importantly... Does Jesus consider you to be his friend? That, that's really the ultimate question, right? Does Jesus consider you his friend? And if you're not sure, you can make sure today. You can come to him today in repentance and faith, and guess what? He will be your best friend forever. The old hymn a worship the king says this, last verse, frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. That's our God. He's our maker, he's our defender, he's our redeemer. And oh, by the way, he's also our friend. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sweet perspective on our relationship with you, that while you are our maker, you're our defender, you're our sustainer, you're our redeemer, but you're also, in a way that somehow doesn't demean you, you're also just our friend. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn to relate to you more on that level, And again, not bringing you down and and somehow dishonoring you by putting you on our level. But Lord, I I believe that Jesus in many ways was wanting to help the disciples to see that that, that they had a very special, unique relationship with him. 
And Lord, that's just the privilege of being a follower of Jesus. And Lord, we are part of that. And so I pray, Lord, even just practically as we, we wake up tomorrow to spend time with you, uh, that, that that would be in the forefront of our minds that we're going to, to hang out with our friend and, and that you've let us in on your plans through your word. And we get to read your word and, and grow in that friendship and that intimacy. And so, Lord, and I pray if there's anyone here who is, who is yet to, to be your friend, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would graciously grant them repentance and faith today. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.